0: Very warm welcome to everybody um, from our side. Um, we talked uh, and good morning to the US, good afternoon to everybody else in Europe. Um, we'll talk to you today about a topic that uh, we're all very happy and uh, interested about the Unified Patent Court, um, the new patent litigation system coming up in Europe. And um, we'll give you a, a high level overview over um, how the court is structured, how proceedings work in this court and um, some strategic considerations in the UPC. Talking to you today um, will be my colleague, Denise Benz, and myself, and uh, turn it over to Denise.
1: Yeah, hello everyone, um, and, and welcome to this presentation. Thank you very much for joining. My name is Denise. Um, I'm a patent litigator based in Ellen Overy's Munich office, um, and I focus on uh, the tech side of patent litigation, which means focusing on a range of technologies, including electronics, mobile communication, mechanical engineering, and so forth. And I represent clients both in infringement and in proceedings.
0: And then a few words about myself. My name is Stefan Neuhaus. I'm a patent navigator located in uh, ANO's Düsseldorf office. Uh, My practice focus is on the life sciences field, uh, representing innovator pharmaceutical companies and all kinds of um, innovator versus um, generic or bismar disputes or innovator versus innovator disputes. And um, I'm also heading um, ANO's UPC working group. And um, we'll give you an introduction into... What you're expecting to see in the next hour. So, we first uh, talk about um, the status of preparation of this new court system. Um, Then, we go slightly into the uh, structure um, of the court and the makeup of the panels before we talk a little about um, whether to or which rights patents are actually in the court system, whether to take patents in um, or out of the system. And then give you a run through um, the general course of uh, infringement and revocation proceedings, as well as uh, the role of experts and evidence um, in the UPC. Um, finally, costs is always uh, some um, aspect to consider before we then finish with a few like strategic aspects uh, in addition. And with that, I uh, kick it off with uh, very good news for us. So um, the UPC agreement was signed in two thousand. Uh, 13. So it has been a long time until this is actually uh, taken off, but uh, we can tell you that uh, as of the beginning of this month, the so 1st of March, so-called sunrise period has begun. So the court is now open to accept um, representative re- registrations and um, patentees can uh, indicate whether they want to um, opt out um, some of the patents. And the court will actually take up its work and uh, accept uh, the first cases starting the 1st of June. This will be followed by a transitional period of seven years uh, during which uh, there is a parallelism between um, litigation in the national courts and the UPC, um, which can then also be prolonged by a further seven years uh, until the final end of the transitional period, um, after which for European patents at least, um, the UPC will be the only venue to bring proceedings um, in the member states participating in this new court system. And with that, I turn it over to Denise to talk a little about the court structure.
1: Right, thank you. So we thought before we get into the details of the proceedings, we would just give you a brief overview of uh, where we will see the, the UPC taking action and also about the general structure of the court. So as you can see on this map, um, there are currently 17 um, member states who have, or where the UPC is currently enforced. Um, there is a number of um, of member states that have signed the UPC agreement, but where the UPC is not currently enforced, but which will likely change in the future. And then there is also um, almost a handful of, of, of member states of the EU where or Europe in Europe, where the UPC is uh, not, the UPC agreement has not been signed, and that includes Spain. Um, but um, having heard from judges in Spain, um, the, there is a likelihood that Spain will, after having had the chance to look a bit uh, at what the UPC is actually doing, uh, considering to, to um, join as well. And so, um, moving on to the, the structure of the court. Um, As you can see here, there are three main elements to the structure. The first instance, the Court of Appeal and the registry. The registry is basically just an administrative center of the UPC and um, the the Court of First Instance, as it already tells you, handles cases at first instance. It is divided into a central division and several local and regional divisions. Um, the central division will have jurisdiction over, for example, infringement actions, standalone revocation actions of patents, um, actions for declaratory uh, of declaration of non-infringement, and also counterclaims for revocation. And the local and regional divisions uh, will have jurisdiction over in infringement actions, um, and then also for uh, over counterclaims of revocation of the patent. The Central Division has its seat in Paris and another section in in Munich currently. Uh, And there are heavy heavy discussions going on about um, having another additional section in Milan. Um, And as you can see on this slide, um, the various sections, so Paris and Munich and then potentially Milan, will deal with different fields of technology. The local and the regional divisions um, are basically established by the participating EU member states either individually or in groups. So a local division it will be based, uh, for example, there will be local divisions in, in Germany, there will be one in Austria, one in, in in France, but there will also be regional divisions where the number of patent cases that the individual countries are handling is too small. And which is why, for example, you, you will have a Nordic Baltic regional division that comprises several individual countries. The panels um, will comprise of um, three multinational judges, both in the local and regional and in the central division. Um, In the bigger local divisions, for example, in Germany, two of the judges will be from this country. So in the local divisions in Germany, we will have two German judges and one uh, foreign judge. 85 judges have been appointed to date, um, both full-time and part-time. And those comprise of 34 legally qualified judges and 51 technically qualified judges. Because as you can see um, on this slide, um, the, the, the red heads, as you may, um, they, are, they shall demonstrate the technically qualified judges. And as you can see, At least one technically qualified judge will be mandatory in the panels at the central division, but it will be an optional addition to the panels at the local and the regional divisions. Then we have the court of appeal. Um, It will be be based in Luxembourg um, and it will hear appeals from the decisions of the court of first instance. The panel is comprised of five judges, three of whom will be um, legally qualified and two of whom will be technically qualified. And so when it comes to the language of the proceedings, um, this will vary from the, um, first of all, whether it's the first instance uh, or the court of appeal, because the Court of Appeal will always follow the language of the the first instance um, court. But at the first instance, and if we move on to the next slide, we can see there. Um, The uh, country hosting or the court hosting the proceedings will offer their local language, which, for example, in Germany will be German, but then potentially the courts can also choose to offer an additional language. And in many cases, we expect to see English to be offered as a second language. So as a plaintiff, you will be then be able to choose the language of the proceedings. So as a foreign plaintiff, you could then, for example, where it's offered, choose the proceedings to be handled in English. And that brings us to the next topic.
0: Yeah, right. So... This is uh, uh, raises the question of which rights actually does the UPC have jurisdiction over, and what would you, which rights would you litigate in the UPC? And this slide shows um, you have the European patents um, number two, the European patents which have not been opted out, uh, but you also have number one a European patent with unitary effect, which takes uh, effect uh, as of the start of the system now. So as of the beginning of this year, with the European Patent Office, um, applicants can um, designate their patent applications to um, obtain a um, unitary effect after grant, which will then um, make them a special right, which has a like a single legal um, existence in all the UPC member states. Um, whereas it can also be then the traditional European patent in other European uh, UPC member states. Um, the, uh, the European Patent with unitary effect is within the exclusive jurisdiction of the UPC and uh, cannot be litigated in any national countries. And uh, decisions will always concern the, the, the right as such as, uh, as a whole and um, yeah, as, a, as an entire right. Further, um, the UPC will have jurisdiction over um, supplementary protection certificates, um, the uh, PTE's uh, equivalent in the US. Um, and um, that there, there does not yet exist uh, a unitary SPC. So um SPCs will still have to be applied for nationally. Um, so there um, there might be a slight discrepancy in which countries there are actually, actually SPCs granted and which not. Uh, finally, um, the UPC will also handle um, complaints about um, handling of European patent applications, uh, specifically of some um, actions taken by the European Patent Office. Um, This now brings us to the question of um, which patents, uh, patentees should leave within the new system or uh, whether to opt out um, patents uh, in their portfolio. And uh, it's very important to keep in mind that if um, patentees don't do anything, um, their European patents that are already granted for some time, they will automatically be within the jurisdiction of the Unified Patent Court. So if patentees want to um, not make use of the new system, um, or not be uh, potential subjects of a UPC revocation action, they need to opt out the patents. And it's actually time to do that now um, until um, the beginning of uh, the court um, in 1st of June. Um, otherwise, there is a possibility that, um, for example, a revocation action is filed in the UPC. And uh, if that happens, then you cannot opt out any patent anymore. Um, there are various possible strategies, obviously, in um, which patents to uh, leave in the system or which to um, to opt out. And um, first of all, you can uh, obviously um, yeah, have a mixed approach of uh, keeping some in the system, opting some out, perhaps the more valuable ones due to the uh, uncertainty about how this system will actually work. Um Alternatively, uh, there are some companies who are actually pursuing um, a portfolio approach. So either taking everything they have out of the UPC or actually leaving pretty much everything in the UPC. Um, Typically, um, the the question obviously depends on the individual case and there's no one size fits all situation. Um, What we've often heard is that um, the more um, important uh, patents are currently uh, being opted out. At least in the life sciences field, um, pharma companies tend uh, tend to opt out their their crown jewel patents and uh, uh, keep stronger secondary patents in the system, uh, while opting out weaker ones. But I've also heard all the like breadth um, of the strategy from from pharma companies of uh, over like keeping everything in and um, taking everything out and going uh, international um, proceedings, um, also with uh, future patent prosecutions. Um, Obviously as lawyers, we are very excited about this new system. So some thoughts on our part of keeping patents in the new system. Um, So if you're actually litigating um, usually in countries which um, take a slightly more stricter approach than the European patent offices, office in in, uh, validity proceedings, as is for example, the case in Germany where the federal patent court um, is very, very strict, specifically on, on the pharmaceutical field or the life sciences field on patents, Then that can be an incentive to actually keep um, your patents within the uh, jurisdiction of the UPC because it's expected that um, the UPC will um, likely apply a somewhat more European Patent Office approach to validity. Also, um, the uh, UPC is intended to provide a very quick procedure and we'll have a look at that later. Um, But, for example, if you usually litigate or if important markets are, uh, for example, countries like Italy, where national proceedings take a very long time, can be very attractive to um, remain within the UPC, uh, where you will be able to get a quick injunction um, and also quick interim relief. Um, What always is a thing to consider, obviously, is that um, decisions of the UPC in an infringement case will grant you an injunction. For example, that is valid throughout all the UPC member states. So you don't have to uh, show infringement in each and every country, but uh, your decision will then be enforceable in all the uh, UPC member states on this patent. Um, the downside being that, um, like a patent ha- being held invalid by the Unified Patent Court, will be invalid in all UPC member states as such. And that brings us to a short overview over the infringement proceedings.
1: Right. And um, maybe just to add one point uh, from a from a tech perspective. So what we've heard from a lot of um, not not life science companies, but um, in in other areas of technology, is that they are actually quite curious to try out the system. And I think the one of the advantages that they will use is that opting in or opting out happens on a patent by patent basis. So it's not a patent a patent family decision, but you can actually leave certain. Patents within a patent family in the system and take others out. And so this is also an option, how to to use some of the patents to try the system and and use others in in national proceedings. And that brings me to um, the infringement proceedings in the UPC. Um, As you can see, the proceedings consist of a written phase, an interim phase, and then the oral procedure. I should say that the proceedings are generally very front-loaded, um, so they are initiated by the statement of claim, which needs to contain the grounds for the inf- for infringement, including facts and evidence that the plaintiff relies on, names of the parties, details of the patent suit, and also the nature of the claim, and an indication of the value of the infringement action. This statement of claim is then followed by the statement of defense, uh, which is due within three months of service of process of the statement of claim. Um, It needs to contain the grounds for dismissal of the action um, together with the relevant evidence. um, And also, again, a statement regarding the value of the infringement action from the defendant's perspective. And it can also, and that is something that we will touch upon later, uh, contain a potential counterclaim for revocation of the patent. You can then there will then be a round of reply and rejoinder um, the reply again being due within two months of service of the statement of defense um, and together with a defense of to the counterclaim of revocation if applicable um, this can then also include and uh, that is something that we know from nullity proceedings uh, in germany for example um, an application by the patent proprietor to amend the patent in the proceedings um, further written pleadings can then be allowed, but the next phase is then the interim procedure, which basically serves case management. So the judge rapporteur uh, gives directions to the parties in preparation for the oral hearing and has discretion to hold one or more interim conferences. Um, this shall then again be completed within three months. And during this time, um, the panel also decides whether to bifurcate infringement and nullity or refer the entire case, for example, to the central division if it has been lodged in the the local division or whether to call in an additional technically qualified judge. Um, Also, further procedural orders, for example, on questions of evidence and the hearing of experts and witness can can be ordered. This can also include an interim conference, which can be held by telephone or video conference. And that brings us then to the actual oral procedure, which will start immediately after the interim procedure has been closed. So all in all, um, you can see that um, This shall result in quite speedy proceedings of about 12 months from filing a statement of claim to actually um, having the hearing and then after the hearing about six weeks uh, for for the grounds of of the decision. This is a challenging schedule, as you can imagine, especially you can argue on the side of the defendant because um, they will be obliged to present not just their non-infringement arguments but also present an entire a revocation case, be it in the form of a counterclaim for revocation or a standalone revocation action, within three months, identifying um, prior art, and of course, then filing the brief. So this is a quite tight schedule, but this is also um, one of the aims of the UPC to to provide um, streamlined and 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 quick proceedings in the first instance. So. The question is then in those proceedings, moving on, um, which remedies are actually available? So which decision on the merits can, can a plaintiff and a defendant expect? Um, I mean, plaintiffs choose the forum. And so the remedies available for a plaintiff are a critical factor in making the UPC attractive for litigation in Europe. As you can see, probably the most important of those remedies will be permanent injunctions. Um, There is an ongoing legal debate as to whether the UPC must issue an injunction in case of infringement of a valid patent or whether there is actually, in practice, real discretion. And the reason being is this Article 63 of the UPC Agreement, where it says that where a decision is taken finding an infringement of a patent, the court may grant an injunction. And that means that there, by law, that there is a certain degree of of discretion provided. Um, But you should also take into consideration that automatic injunctions, which means that in case of a fine of of infringement, an injunction is granted, are known in many national laws, for example, in Germany and in in the Netherlands. And there is currently the prevailing opinion still that the UPC has a discretion because it's in in the law, um, whether to grant an injunction in, in case of infringement or not. Um, which is, for example, known from UK proceedings, but bearing in mind that the UK is not part of the UPC anymore. Um, So... It seems likely that um, if an infringement action is brought before a local division located in a UPC member state like the Netherlands or Germany with an existing tradition of automatic injunctions, such local divisions will in fact not exercise any discretion but grant an injunction in line with its national tradition. We would therefore expect the UPC to adopt an approach of granting automatic or leaning towards granting automatic injunctions in line with the legal traditions and only um, making use of the discretion in very exceptional cases. Another remedy that is available are declarations of non-infringement, which may also be obtained before the UPC. And there are also other corrective measures available, such as, um, as you can see, uh, recall of products, depriving product of infringing property, or removing products from the channel of commerce or from the market, and also destruction of the products. In these cases, um, proportionality needs to be assessed between the seriousness of the infringement and the remedies that are about to be ordered. Um, And the court will then decide upon which corrective measures it will grant. One other important aspect is that the UPC will make awards of damages or an accounting of profits available you should know that there will not be any punitive damages available in in the UPC. And uh, if we move on to the next slide, um, you can see that the rules of procedure of the UPC basically provide two ways for the determination of damages. It's either directly in the context of the infringement proceedings, um, and the amount of damages or compensation is then immediately stated in the judgment of the infringement proceedings, or it can be dealt with in separate proceedings. Um, Because arguments of calculation or arguments on on calculation of damages um, complicate proceedings, and because the rules of procedure provide room for discretion, we would expect that only in exceptional cases and exceptional circumstances, damages will be directly determined in a judgment on non-infringement. So we expect to see those separate proceedings that you can see on this slide. They are initiated by the plaintiff filing a request for determination of damages in those separate proceedings and no later than one year from service of the final decision on the merits on both infringement and validity of the patent or within one year from service of an award of damages. The damages have to be calculated taking into account all appropriate aspects, especially lost profits, um, infringers profit, as well as non-economic factors such as moral prejudice. The calculations of damages may also be based on the books of the defendant. Um, The UPC agreement and the rules of procedure provide for an order to lay open such books, which um, a plaintiff may request in its application for the the determination of damages. The court may also stay the application for a determination of damages in the separate proceedings, pending an appeal on the merits upon a reasoned request um, by the defendant. And um, that brings us actually to the appeal proceedings uh, in the UPC. They can be launched against any decision of the court of first instance. And any party which has been unsuccessful, either in whole or in part, can launch or file an, an appeal. The appeal proceedings are basically organized in the same way as the first instance procedure. So there is a written procedure followed by an interim procedure and then an oral hearing. Um, And the appeal against the decision may be based on points of law and matters of fact. Um, However, the Court of Appeal may disregard requests, facts or evidence that have not been submitted by a party during proceedings before the Court of First Instance. So you need to be careful uh, which which, uh, additional um, facts and so on you can actually introduce into the appeal proceedings. In general um, an appeal does not have a suspensive effect uh, unless there are concerns that the decision on actions or uh, this concerns on the decisions on the infringement action or a counterclaim of revocation uh, in all other proceedings the court of appeal must decide without delay at the request of one of the parties whether to stay the proceedings or whether to suspend the enforcement or not the decision of the appeal court would then be either be a rejection of the appeal or it will uh, set aside the decision of the first instance court totally or in part um, substituting its own decision. Only in exceptional circumstances, uh, we expect the court of appeal to refer back the action to the court of first instance for either a decision or even a retrial. And so that was basically the main proceedings um, in first instance and in in the appeal court before the UPC. But there are also a number of preliminary measures available in the UPC. First of all, preliminary injunctions uh, against the alleged alleged infringer or an intermediary. But there are also precautionary seizure of movable or immovable proper, property of the alleged infringer. Including the freezing of bank accounts available or a seizure or surrender of products um, that are suspected of infringing a patent. If main proceedings are already pending, the same panel dealing with the main action will have exclusive jurisdiction to hear the application for preliminary measures. If no main action is pending, the applicant may choose a competent court or a competent division in accordance with the same choice of forum as in main proceedings. And when considering to grant a PI, the relevant panel must exercise its discretion to weigh the interests of the parties and take into account in particular the possible damage that could result to one of the parties from the issuance or rejection of the injunction, um, and which is the balance of convenience. Um, and the court must also take into account any unreasonable delay on the applicant side in applying for the PI. A PI can also be revoked. It is subject to appeal, but it can also be revoked uh, if, in case that no proceedings on the merits are pending, the defendant of a PI may request that the PI be revoked after grant if the applicant does not file an action on the merits within a predefined time period. And the defendant also has the right to request appropriate compensation for damage, which is caused by the measures where the provisional measures are later being revoked. An oral hearing in PI proceedings is optional, so you can either get a an ex-party PI or an inter PI. Um, and especially in relation to ex-party PIs or the risk of an ex-party PI and how to potentially avoid it, that brings me to protective letters. Um, and so moving on, this is a concept that we are familiar with from German proceedings. Um, so in case that there isn't a, a risk Uh, on the potential defendant side that a PI request may be filed, one needs to consider whether to file a protective letter. And um, the general concept of a protective letter is sort of a preemptive response to a PI request, which is sort of... comparable to a preemptive response to a complaint. It is filed with the UPC registry, and it's under a seal. So uh, it is not disclosed. It is only disclosed um, once uh, a PI request is filed. And it's then forwarded to the the panel or the judge handling the PI request. Um, And the protective letter also expires after six months if it is not used or extended. Purpose of a uh, protective letter is basically not to not so much to avoid the the PI as such, but to avoid the ex parte PI. Because um, as a potential defendant, uh, if you have a strong case of non-infringement and or invalidity of the patent, it makes sense to produce those arguments to tell the the judge or show the judge that there is actually there there are reasonable doubts as to uh, whether a PI should be granted um, to make the judge order a hearing and and hear the defendant. It is always a thorough balancing of the pros and cons, because um, a, a, a weak protective letter can also backfire. So, if it's a not so strong, non infringement position or and, and the validity position or invalidity position is also not quite clear, then it may actually make sense not to file a protective letter because that can actually weaken the case of the defendant. If the judge looks at it and thinks, well, if that's all they got, then I can, may just uh, order an ex parte PI. So it's a uh, thorough considerations and a case-by-case decision whether to file a protective letter or not.
0: It brings us to the next question of the course of procedure in the revocation procedure or a counterclaim for revocation. And actually, um, the re- revocation procedure is uh, more or less identical um, to the infringement proceedings um, that we've already like taken a look at. So the standalone uh, revocation proceedings will be a front-loaded written procedure um, of about six months, uh, seven months, and then followed by an interim uh, phase, and then and then the oral hearing. So uh, the procedure at the central division. Um, now also um, there is a possibility for um, a validity counterclaim in, in infringement proceedings, and uh, that is then integrated into the um, running procedure, where um, the defendant has uh, like uh, three months of time to prepare his uh, validity counterclaim, and then. Um, there, there will be um, submission deadlines running in parallel in the infringement and the validity setting. Um, as Denise has already um, like turned to before, the question of bifurcation um, in uh, the UPC is certainly something that people are um, looking at closely, specifically given that, um, like uh, for example, the German system, which is a bifurcated system in which Infringement courts do not decide validity, but um, validity has to be challenged in uh, validity courts separately, proceedings running in parallel, the validity procedure being slightly or significantly uh, longer, therefore resulting in an injunction gap. That has always uh, been a big um, like, uh, source of discussion in the international community. And um, the question was whether the UPC would entertain the bifurcation of uh, infringement and validity proceedings and uh, whether for example the German local divisions would be prone to uh, continue their national practice and bifurcate um, uh, the infringement and validity cases. Um, from the um, legal possibilities uh, that the UPC agreement offers, there are actually four different possibilities. Um, the local division uh, in an infringement action can actually proceed Um, with the infringement action and the counterclaim for revocation. Uh, So here, uh, both of these aspects together, it would then um, like add a technical judge um, to the panel. So there will will be a mandatory four judges on the panel then, three legal judges and a technical judge. And um, a decision will uh, both concern the validity as well as the infringement. Um, The court also has the discretion to bifurcate the case, um, so to sever the uh, um, uh, invalidity counterclaim and um, refer that to the central division, um, whereas it could then proceed with the infringement claim as well. Um, That would be a classical situation as we um, currently face it, for example, in Germany. Um, The alternative um, would be to bifurcate and um, stay the infringement procedure, procedure pending an outcome in the validity proceedings at the central division. And finally, um, there could be a referral to the central division of both the infringement as well as the um, validity case, but only if both parties consent to this procedure. So that's actually something that is not within the discretion of the court, fully in in the discretion of the court, but would require consent by the parties. Now, what is likely to happen, um, we, we've like heard a lot from uh, specifically also the German judges uh, sitting in the local divisions, and they all are very much looking forward to add technical judges um, to the panel and hear both the infringement as well as the validity counterclaim. Um, so it is very unlikely um, that we will see a lot of uh, bifurcation um, in the UPC, specifically given that also the infringement judges Um, feel that um, like the injunction, uh, the the bifurcated system is something that is um, determined by law, obviously, but uh, which they are not very happy with. So um, they are very much looking forward to actually hear the whole case together. Um, In this context, um, it should also be kept in mind that there are some situations in which uh, there might be like a forced bifurcation in the UPC For example, um, starting um, a validity, not a validity counterclaim, but a standalone infringement, uh, standalone validity procedure at the Central Division. And then the the patentee suing a different company. Um, In this case, these cases wouldn't be merged, but um, the Central Division would then um, look at the uh, validity case separately and the... the, um, uh, the uh, local division would look at the infringement case, unless the defendant in that case obviously raises also uh, invalidity counterclaim. Um, finally, um, there's also a possibility for the patentee to sue, uh, not for the patentee, but for the exclusive licensee to sue a defendant. And in that case, um, given the patentee is not party to this proceedings, um, a validity counterclaim is barred. And the defendant can only bring a centalone revocation procedure in uh, the UPC uh, in the central division. So there are situations in which a patentee who can like consider that to be a favorable um, situation somewhat force the defendant uh, in a bifurcated uh, situation. Um, it is, however, to be expected that the UPC will then coordinate both uh, the proceedings at the central division and the local division, and likely. Um, yeah, render um, a decision in the uh, infringement case only after the validity case has been heard. Um, as we've set down on this slide, obviously uh, revocation proceedings will then in these cases uh, in which they run in parallel be accelerated and the judge rapporteur um, uh, in the infringement case shall set a hearing date um, after the revocation proceedings um, or the um, uh, UPC is also allowed to actually render a decision under a condition that the patent is uh, not held um, invalid. There's also something that um, is currently a hot topic um, talked about in the context of the so-called long-arm jurisdiction of the UPC. So uh, the UPC is considered a court of the member states um, within the uh, recast Brussels 1 regulation, so a court of the the European Union and therefore um, for example if um, you have a defendant which is domiciled in one of the UPC countries you could sue this defendant also for an infringement uh, for example of the spanish part of the european patent in which case the UPC would hear that case and in in the uh, with regard to the spanish part would then have to consider like spanish law in uh, terms of infringement um, in case for example in, there is a invalidity counterclaim filed in spain uh, the UPC could then, for example, render its decision with the effect for Spain um, only under the condition that uh, the validity has first been um, approved by the Spanish courts. So that is also a possibility. Um, in case the judgment has to be like um, reversed or lifted after a decision um, on validity and on appeal, for example, um, the patentee has to uh, compensate the defendant for the damages caused. Um, The threshold for a stay um, of the infringement action um, is also something to be considered where co-pending European opposition proceedings um, are going on. So the UPC is not barred from taking um, a validity counterclaim or a standalone revocation action, um, even pending a a European opposition procedure so that proceedings could go on in parallel. uh, in the, the UPC can, however, then stay also the uh, validity proceedings in the UPC um, if there is a like a close outcome expected in the EPO and can actually wait also for, for a decision of the EPO. But considering the time that you actually require nowadays for an EPO position and um, the time frame that the UPC procedure is expected to be in, namely like a decision in after about a year, Um, and an appeal after about a further year, Um, you might expect people to not only rely on European oppositions, but also um, to bring um, revocation actions in the UPC in parallel, um, which might actually overtake European opposition proceedings. Another interesting point or question always is um, how to prove um, your actual claim in the court. What, are, what is the available evidence and what is the role of experts in the procedure? So the UPC will have a very broad possibility of considering evidence. So everything that you can bring in front of the court can be considered, be it, for example, written documents, witness statements, expert statements, drawings, physical objects, etc. Um, Evidence can be obtained also by the court, by either um, hearing parties um, or hearing experts. Um, The UPC can also, for example, inspect a physical object or uh, order tests and experiments. So the procedure is very much um, intended to also be driven by the judge rapporteur and the court to clarify the factual setting that the court will look at. Um, And these lists um, that are given in the UPC agreement are explicitly non-limiting. So wherever the court finds something suitable um, to be determined as evidence that uh, there is a possibility to use this. Um, There's also no hierarchy between the various means of evidence. So the court has full discretion here to weigh um, the evidence before him. And um, what is also a, um, a thing of perhaps remaining or coming from the German procedural law is that um, parties have to make their factual statements and wherever they do not dispute or contest a certain factual statement by the other side, the court will consider that fact to be true. So that is uh, a mean which has always been proven, for example, in German procedure to to render the procedure very efficient. So there's no um, discovery, um, as you know it from the US and the UPC. But um, parties will make their claims and uh, their statements, and wherever um, there is no dispute about a fact, the court will just consider this um, to be yeah, the factual basis on which it decides the case. Um, every party that is relying on a certain evidence or a factual point um, uh, to, to, bring, uh, to make its claim or its, the counterclaim has to prove, um, has the burden of proof to, um, to this factual, uh, factual position. And um, in case the party does not uh, produce uh, corresponding evidence, then uh, the court shall take such failure into account, is what the UPC agreement says uh, when making its decision. So expectedly, um, it will consider um, a decision based on the burden of proof and might dismiss the case based on this um, possibility. Moving on, we um, take a look at uh, what witnesses and party experts role are in the UPC. Um, the, um, as Denise has already pointed out, um, the UPC procedure is a front-loaded, very written procedure um, to make it efficient and um, uh, yeah, save a lot of time. So the parties shall provide um, written um, evidence mainly also with regard to witnesses they offer and experts. So and it's expected that uh, parties will provide written evidence, uh, written witness statements, written expert reports um, and witnesses and experts will only actually be heard um, in exceptional cases. Namely, um, if um, the judge rapporteur orders that um, uh, during the, for example, the interim hearing on uh, the own motion of the court, because it feels that there needs to be some clarification. Um, or um, like upon the uh, respective um, request by the other party, which can then be decided one way or the other by the judge rapporteur, Um, or if in case there is like a challenge to the factual statement by the other side. Um, Also, um, given there's there's no discovery, there's also no hard cross-examination of witnesses or experts in UPC procedure, but um, the court will um, like ask Questions and will um, handle the uh, examination or questions by the parties. So um, there isn't any like um, situation in which you can like cross-examine um, or hard cross-examine a, a witness or an expert. Um, all of the witness hearing or um, hearing the of, of an expert will uh, usually be done within the main hearing, which we've already heard is supposed to be handled within one day. Um, which gives you a, uh, an indication of uh, the depth and length uh, that the court will expect to actually spend on hearing witnesses or hearing experts, considering that you might actually have to consider an infringement as well as a validity counterclaim in, uh, in a one-day hearing. Um, a further possibility that the UPC uh, provides is that the court in a case that it has to resolve a specific technical or other question which it cannot do by itself, for example, by way of consulting with the technical judge, um, the court can then appoint a court expert, um, which would be then um, have a more independent role, being not appointed by a party, um, and which who will also then uh, provide a written report, um, which the parties can uh, render comments and uh, can be asked questions in a a hearing, um, if it's ordered by the court that there is a hearing of this court-appointed expert. Um, There are other possibilities, obviously, to um, gather evidence, um, absent any uh, discovery. So um, there is a possibility for the court, uh, upon request, to order the other side um, to produce evidence, which is um, within the sole control of that other party. the requesting party has to present reasonable available evidence uh, in terms of the existence of that evidence and the necessity of um, having that evidence. Um, And the judge rapporteur may order the production of the evidence in the interim or in the written procedure, um, taking into account protection of confidential information Um, we have a similar uh, procedural provision in the German code of civil procedure, which rarely actually is made made use of in practice. So we will need to see of how um, leniently or freely the UPC will uh, uh, proceed with this um, procedural possibility. Another option is uh, for a standalone procedure, which can also be started prior to an actual pending um, action on the merits. Um, namely, in order to pre- preserve evidence, according to the um, system of the French saisie, um, as well as uh, a possible inspection of premises, of documents, etc., um, slightly along the model of uh, German inspection proceedings. Um, as I said, that's uh, the possibility is um, to re- um, start these proceedings as a standalone um, procedure uh, prior to an actual action on the merits. Um, and it requires that uh, the applicant has some idea, a good idea of which evidence he seeks and where that evidence is actually located. Um, such an SAZ or an inspection can be heard, uh, ordered with or without um, the hearing of the other party, um, specifically in cases where there is danger that uh, upon a like hearing of the other party, the evidence might be destroyed or um, brought away. Um, the court will then likely also grant these requests ex parte, as is the use also in, currently in Germany, for example. And um, the, the court has a broad discretion on what actually to order. Um, can order um, a, to, to provide a detailed description, the taking of samples of production processes, um, seizure of physical um, goods or, or manufacturing um, equipment or um, preservation of digital media, etc. Um, Obviously, after the uh, seizure or inspection has been taken place, the other side will have known what what has happened. So there's a 15 days appeal period in which um, appeals can be brought before the court. And um, if the court order is revoked or if the proceedings um, uh, are not uh, on the merits, are not started within a certain time frame of uh, 31 calendar days or 20 working days from receiving the expert report, then um, the order will be revoked and uh, the applicant will uh, be uh, held liable for compensation as well. So, there's also something to consider here in this context. Um, now, also, one important aspect of uh, procedures is always uh, aspect of how expensive it is. And I turn it over to Denise to talk a little bit, a little bit about that.
1: Right. Um, so, just a few. Uh, notes on on costs cost recovery uh, to give you a flavor of what the the, the proceedings in the UPC will actually mean financially for the parties. Mm -hmm. And of course, um, I mean, costs are one of the key factors that patent proprietors will weigh up when considering the UPC as a forum for patent litigation. Um, And such costs include, of course, the amount of the the court fees, for example, involved, but also the costs recoverable from the other side. And of course, that is also something that is of interest for the defendant. Um, When I say costs, this includes um, the court fees, the UPC court fees, but also the costs for representation, so for outside counsel, and of course, then uh, expenses such as expert and witness costs. The Rules of the UPC provide that a successful party is entitled to recover reasonable and uh, proportionate costs. So as it says here on this slide, the loser pays. Um, That doesn't mean that you can recover um, as a successful party the entire costs for lawyers fees, for example. Um, Even though it includes the recovery of lawyers fees, um, they are subject to a sliding scale based on the case value. Um, So it's not the actual costs that incur. Um, a ceiling is set on the recoverable costs, uh, which is again subject to subject to the value of the claim. Um, and on the next slide, we just wanted to give you a brief overview of what that might look like and, and a few examples of the costs involved, especially the, as you can see here, the court fees. And as the slide shows, there are generally two kinds of fees. First of all, fixed fees, which are payable for initiating an action. And then additionally, for example, for infringement actions and for uh, actions regarding declarations of non-infringement, a value-based fee. Um, And I won't go through all the numbers on the slide, but just to give you some, some sense is that, for example, a standalone revocation action will cost 20000 euros in terms of of court fees preliminary injunction proceedings only have a fix also only have a fixed f- fee of currently 11000 euros um and as you can see, for infringement actions, um, there is this fixed fee of €11,000 and then the additional value-based fee, which ranges between €4,000 and €325,000 for um, values of disputes of above €50 million. And then there are also fees payable on appeal. Um, as regards appeals against final decisions of the first of court A court of first instance on infringement and on declarations of non-infringement the fee is the same as that paid at first instance and so that that is basically the summary and I guess for now all you need to know about uh, the UPC court fees.
0: Right and then uh, considering time we've just like a few um, some more uh, ideas about some strategic aspects of, of the new court system and one that I always thought uh, would be very interesting for patentees, for example, is the enforcement of process patents, which is kind of a burdensome process currently in national proceedings. And often patentees do not or shy away from, from actually enforcing process patents because uh, evidencing infringement is a very big challenge. And also um, you have a situation in which um, often there are different um, like parts of the process um, Um, fulfilled in different countries and uh, one big um, improvement on the UPC will likely be that uh, in these cases of a distributed infringement which is distributed about uh, various UPC member states uh, will give give you a very better uh, take actually because um, the the whole process is being used within the territory of the UPC so that can actually be a very, very big improvement and therefore enforcing process patterns. Also on the um, evidence gathering side that I've talked about a little earlier, um, the uh, order to produce evidence under the UPC regime is not restricted to documents or written evidence, but uh, can be uh, more far-reaching than than it is currently, um, yeah, um, the practice, for example, in Germany. And um, it can also, um, be a very uh, powerful tool, depending on how the UPC will actually apply the uh, grant of uh, inspection orders. For example, in the German procedure currently, um, you would uh, require to show the court that there is a likelihood of infringement um, in order uh, to uh, for the court to order an inspection, which typically requires like a showing a likelihood of more than 50% that the patents actually infringed. Um, under the UPC, um, however. Um, the um the the legal text um, is just uh, copied from the the enforcement directive, the European Enforcement Directive, which only requires a reasonable um, yeah, providing reasonably available evidence. So we will see in practice whether that turns out to be something different. Um, but it uh, makes a lot of sense to say, well, if the patentee has made all efforts to actually evidence a potential infringement, even if that does not render it more likely or less likely, so but a 50% chance that the the process is actually infringed, that the court should then order an inspection and um, institute the respective um, provisions for safeguarding potential confidential information. Um, Also important to know is that under the UPC, all the um, results that you will receive from the um, Z or from the uh, inspection will only be able to be used in the, in Mary's proceedings in the UPC. So there will not be an automatic possibility to use all the, all of this information in proceedings abroad, like it's for example done in Germany right now. Um, but um, the UPC can order um, issue an order that uh, the evidence can be used in other procedure. So it's a it's a specific order necessary, but it's also a possibility. Um, similar to uh, 17 uh, Section Seventeen Eighty Two um, action in the US to actually gather evidence for proceedings in other countries. And finally, um, there are provisions um, for the reversal of burden of proof. In some cases, uh, for example, for um, enforcement of um, process patterns where the process results in a new product that is uh, already part in most of the... European um, Patent Convention member states. Um, However, the UPC also um, does not necessarily require that um, the result of the process is a new product, but it also um, provides for reversal of burden of proof in cases when there is a substantial likelihood that the process was used and the patentee failed to evidence infringement despite reasonable efforts. So actually the possibilities um, for the uh, patentee to actually get some... Um, benefits in terms of showing of infringement um, might might be even greater in the UPC. Um, Finally, um, some considerations about, um, yeah, companies uh, being concerned about being sued in the UPC. So uh, as Denise said, uh, the patentee chooses the forum, um, so they can uh, choose whether to sue in the UPC or not, Um, how to prepare then against being sued in the UPC. Um, First of all, um, starting now, it's good to monitor uh, which patents of your competitors are being opted out and which are not. So then you can um, make a better guess of um, which patents might be litigated in the UPC or not. Um, also, um, the protective letter, um, something that Denise already um, turned, uh, turned up and um, talked about, is a very good measure, given that also the UPC rules um, yeah, um, indicate that if the protective letter is filed, then... There shouldn't be an ex parte decision in interim relief proceedings, but um, the court should hear the parties um, in oral proceedings. Um, On the validity side, um, we've talked about technical judges. Many of the technical judges in the UPC will be part-time patent attorneys or working in in private practice or in uh, industry. So there currently is a very big discussion going on about impartiality and and conflicts here. And... um, it might be an option to actually see whether it's, uh, it's good to um, yeah, perhaps conflict one of the potential technical judges out if uh, there, there um, is some, some use of cases actually where, where um, there's a certain tendency of a certain technical judge to, to see issues different than, than his colleagues. Um, further, what one could consider is filing a strawman revocation action in the UPC. Um, to get a second shot at uh, validity, for example, also in parallel to European opposition proceedings, um, and also to prepare early enough for potential infringement action by preparing a validity counterclaim. As we've seen, otherwise there's very little time to actually prepare validity um, um, a validity challenge um, if it uh, if the patent's actually enforced against you. Um, For example, I I leave it at that. I think given the time, um, if there are any questions, we'd be very happy to answer those. Um, And otherwise, thank you very much for your attention. Don't see any questions in the Q&A section yet.
1: I don't see any questions listed either, but I just wanted to hop on and say thank you so much to our panel for speaking today, and thank you so much to our audience for joining us. We certainly look forward to seeing you all at future events. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.